This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear A Different Kind of Imperfection by Thomas Beller. His father and mother were extremely good-looking, particularly his mother. His father had been born in Vienna. He had a certain monkey quality to him. The story was chosen by Saeed Serafizadeh, two of whose stories have been published in the magazine. He's the author of several plays and the memoir, When Skateboards Will Be Free. Hi, Saeed. Hi, Deborah. So you and Tom Beller are friends or colleagues? We are. Right? I didn't know if that was going to come out here. <laughs> <laughs> you, you used to write for his website, Mr. Yeah. Beller's Neighborhood. We, um, we met playing basketball, and then he invited me once to write uh, for his MrBellersNeighborhood.com website. Was that when you first read his fiction? Had you read him before? No, I, I didn't even know he was a writer and didn't uh, know much about his success until he invited me and then I uh, read it. I realized going through his collection of stories, I hadn't read them all. And I feel like a terrible friend for that <laughs> for all these years. If you have a lot of friends who are writers, it's hard to right. keep up. And how did you first read this story, A Different Kind of Imperfection? This one I do remember reading must have been 10 years ago. And then rereading it now with The New Yorker in mind, I found it uh, incredibly moving. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, on a personal level, it speaks a lot to my own life and upbringing. So it, it, hit, it hits home. It was his first story published in The New Yorker, and it was published in 1991 when he was only 25 and still an MFA student at Columbia. What do you think swayed the editors here to pull this story out of an enormous pile of young hopefuls. You know, it's amazing he wrote this when he was 25. Yeah. I think it's incredibly sophisticated, but also simple. Steve Jobs said sophistication is in the simplicity. Mm-hmm. It's intelligent. The references to other works, I don't know, brings a certain depth to it. Mm-hmm. Who do you think the story is most influenced by? Are there other writers in particular you have in mind? This is odd because I, I don't think Tom would have been thinking about this. Reading it actually just now, thinking of Samuel Beckett's Crap's Last Tape, mm-hmm. where he reviews his life by way of uh, tape recordings of his journals, there seems to be a, an amazing parallel and the idea of, of an aging man nearing his death. Well, this story is told from the point of view of a young man coming home from college at Christmas and staying with his mother. Is there anything else that you think people should know about the story before they hear it? No, I think just <laughs> launch in. <laughs> just absorb it. Yeah. Okay, well, we'll talk more after the story. Now here's Saeed Serafizadeh reading Thomas Beller's story, A Different Kind of Imperfection. And then it was Christmas vacation, and he was home. Welcome home, Alexander, his mother said when he walked in the door, pressing her warm face against his cold one. She was the only person who used his full name. It sounded odd. She had bought some flowers and arranged them around the house in the special way she had of making things seem nice and attended to. Having brought him up alone, his father had died when he was ten. His mother was diligent about respecting his privacy, not prying into his life. He always felt guilty about not wanting to tell her things about himself the few times she asked. After all, he was her son, her only child, and his life would be of interest to her. So... Tell me about school, she said now, sitting across from him at the kitchen table. 
His bags were piled up behind him in the foyer, and he slouched in his chair, which seemed too small for him. The whole house seemed oddly small in comparison to the high ceilings of the ancient dorm he lived in at Vassar, where he was now a sophomore. The scene, he and his mother in the same chairs, the same look on her face, reminded him of coming home from kindergarten and having his mother and father ask him how school was while they sat at the kitchen table. He had always shrugged and said nothing, but he sometimes wondered whether both of his parents had spent their entire day waiting for him at the kitchen table, discussing him. All that attention seemed to demand more from him than anything he could supply with meager details about his fractions or papier-mâché cow, and so he usually said nothing. Eventually he would shrug and slouch on into his room, down the long, dark hallway. But he had always liked the idea that both his parents had been in conference over him all day. Now here was his mother, sitting in the same position at the kitchen table, smiling and asking him the same questions, looking loving and a little daunting, as usual. It was too much love to live up to. There's really nothing much to say, he answered, thinking about Sloane, his suddenly ex-girlfriend. She lived in Baltimore. He had never thought about that city. But now that Sloane lived there, was in fact there that very moment, Baltimore seemed like an alluring place. I seem to be getting the hang of how to be a college student, he said. It's not too difficult. And your studies? Alex winced at the word. Studies was too dignified for what he was doing. Well, I'm not going to major in sociology. That's all I can say for sure. What's it like? she asked. The dorms are pretty nice, but at night the only place to get food is the candy machine. He paused for a moment. The classes are good, though he went on, thinking she would enjoy hearing that. Sloane was the first girl he had really gone out with in college, and by extension the first girl he had really broken up with. She was a vegetarian poet who had her own place off campus, which seemed like a very daring move in sophomore year. Her apartment was just across the road, but the fact that it was technically off campus made it seem illicit. They had gone out together for a few months, but just before vacation, Sloane informed him, or reminded him, as she pointed out, that she had another boyfriend at home. She told him that she felt she had to give that a chance. It was shaping up to be a miserable Christmas vacation, he thought. His mother cupped her face in her hands. Her chin rested on the heel of each palm, and her fingers were over her cheeks, framing her face. She was very pretty, and yet her happiest expression always seemed to have a tinge of sadness. His father had died of cancer nine years earlier, and Alex couldn't remember whether this look of gravity had come into her face after that. Perhaps being happy always reminded her of her loss. She hadn't remarried. She hadn't even painted the apartment. Alex looked into her liquid eyes and smiled. Then he escaped down the hall. His room seemed different. Freshman year, he had scurried down to New York from Poughkeepsie almost every chance he got, and his first Christmas vacation had seemed like a reprieve. His room had welcomed him. His mother had welcomed him. The whole house had burst to life, as if it had been in suspended animation since the day he left. Coming home this time was different. He couldn't get over how strange it felt to be back. His room was just as he had left it, but it just sat there, inanimate, waiting to be occupied by whoever came along. He went out into the early evening light and walked over to a bar on 83rd in Amsterdam, the jaunting car. It was the last bar in his neighborhood with any charm, but today it was almost empty. 
He ordered a scotch and looked at himself in the mirror behind the bar. One of the better things he had acquired since going to college was a taste for scotch. Previously, he had drunk only vodka, a habit he had formed at the age of 14 when he had sampled all the bottles in his parents' liquor cabinet and had decided that vodka was the least unpleasant. His mother didn't drink and hardly ever had guests, and it had sometimes occurred to him that the bottle of Wolfschmidt he was drinking from had probably been bought by his father. His first cigarette, which he had smoked at about the same age, had come from an ancient pack of Dunhills he had found in a table drawer, in among a collection of broken sunglasses frames, pipe cleaners, loose buttons, and other artifacts of his father's. It was an odd collection of items, the debris that comes together only because there isn't enough of any one thing to require its own drawer. When he came upon it, four years after his father had died, the stash itself looked static, stunned with age. That cigarette, Alex recalled now, had been rancid. The pack of Dunhills was probably still there. The drawer was always shut. He spent the first few days back from school mostly alone. He had stopped frantically trying to touch base with friends from high school, the way he'd done at this time a year ago. He thought about Sloan. He walked around the streets at midday in the bright, high winter sun and spent hours meandering around his house examining shelves and closets he hadn't looked at in years. The apartment, with its cracked and peeling paint, its rickety wooden chairs with half-broken cane seats, was filled with books, among them many dark green or maroon volumes with titles like Textbook of Pathology and Clinical Hematology and a huge book with the ominous title, Heart. His father had been a doctor, a psychiatrist. Alex perused the bookshelves with a peculiar interest, as if he were looking for clues. One set of 24 books in pale blue dust jackets took up an entire shelf. The complete works of Sigmund Freud. He took out Totem and Taboo and looked at the first chapter. The Horror of Incest. He put the book back with the haste of someone who had opened the door of an occupied bathroom. Scanning for a lighter topic, he took out jokes and their relation to the unconscious. He opened to a random page and read, It is remarkable how universally popular a smutty interchange of this kind is among the common people and how it unfailingly produces a cheerful mood. He returned the book to its place and listened to the silence of the house. He and his mother lived in an apartment building, but all their neighbors were quiet. While he was growing up, the only noisy person in the building had been himself. He had once bounced a rubber ball so incessantly that the downstairs neighbors had called the police. He then took to throwing water balloons out the window. He was so intrigued by the way the balloons shimmered, like jello, he thought, in their flight to the ground that he always forgot to duck his head back in the window in time, and soon he got caught. He and his mother were nearly evicted, she told him. Again and again, as he prowled around the house now, he was struck by the evidence of lives lived. It lay on the shelves, along the walls, stacked in piles on the floor. Alex's college roommate, Milo, called and announced he was going to be in New York for an afternoon before he went skiing. They met in a coffee shop for lunch. You're bored, Milo said over a tuna fish sandwich. You should get out of New York. Come skiing with me. I don't ski, Alex said. Come for the scenery. There's plenty of scenery here. I can see a little sliver of the Hudson River and part of New Jersey from my window. Milo gave Alex an appraising look. Come for the women, he said, 
This place is going to be crawling with women. You need a distraction. I am distracted, said Alex. I need to concentrate. You're concentrating on your distraction, Milo said. A little piece of food had lodged itself at the corner of his mouth. This completely discredited him in Alex's mind. The guy couldn't swallow properly. He wasn't someone whose advice was going to be helpful. All right, all right, Milo went on. You're concentrating on Sloan, which is depressing you. Tell you what, work on it, and when you've got it perfected, give me a call. Then he neatly pinched the tuna speck from the corner of his mouth and flicked it at Alex. That was the problem with you and Sloan, he went on with some satisfaction. You were just an amateur at being depressed. Sloan was a pro. You couldn't keep up. The apartment's foreignness had begun to wear off, giving way to something even more disturbing. It was familiarity, but not the kind that makes things disappear into the background. Now every detail jumped out and announced itself as significant, the way banal things became significant whenever there were guests in the apartment. Alex was his own guest now, he decided, a sightseer in his own home. He began to realize that his house was submerged in books, Hundreds and hundreds of them, in the corner bookshelf, on the bookshelf against the wall, or stacked in dusty heaps in a corner, spilling over everywhere. He noticed that some of the books held slivers of paper, which projected above the tops of the pages. He opened one such book and discovered faded pencil underlinings on each of the marked pages, with a word or two of comment here and there in the margin. Alex didn't know much about his father's intellectual life but he had lately noticed that his father's haphazard handwriting bore a conspicuous resemblance to his own. He examined the pages more carefully, and the marginal notes seemed to confirm it. He went from book to book and eventually stopped at one and began to read. It was To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf, a book he'd never read. The volume itself was old. Its gray cloth was tattered at the corners, but the binding remained stiff and dignified. The pages were only slightly yellow and had a certain weight to them. The book had been published in 1927, five years after his father was born. When had his father read it? He had arrived in America as a teenager sometime before the Second World War, so if he had read this in college, it would have been the early 1940s, and he would have been almost the same age as Alex was now, reading the same pages. But there was the possibility that he had read the book years later, maybe even after Alex was born. There were no marks to indicate which, one way or the other. He read on, turning each page in anticipation of another one of his father's marks. On page 99, a strand of pencil underlined a fragment of a sentence. She had known happiness, exquisite happiness, intense happiness. It was not a line that would have jumped off the page at Alex, but seeing it underlined by his father disturbed him and moved him. The words, exquisite happiness, intense happiness, resonated above the whispery pencil mark that flowed underneath them. Alex stared at the pencil lines for a moment, as if they were completely separated from the writing. He was waiting for the lines to reveal something. The pencil was neither sharp nor dull. The lines didn't seem to have been drawn with a great deal of pressure, but they weren't too light either. Had they been made in bed, or at a desk, or an armchair, or on a bus? He felt a pang of frustration, trying to imagine what his father had been thinking. 
It was a sharp twinge that made him shudder for a moment. He was in the kitchen one afternoon, staring into the refrigerator, when his mother came in and sat down at the table expectantly, as if she wanted to have a conversation. He obliged, sitting down across from her. She smiled, tilted her head a little, and said, "'What are you thinking?' "'Nothing,' he said. He wanted to say more, but couldn't. It was always this way with his mother. The unwilling retreat. "'You have been walking around with a funny expression, as though something is bothering you.' "'Nothing is bothering me. It's just odd to be back. You know, like when you go away and then come back, and it's like, stop saying like.' It's weird, then. I can tell something is on your mind. You have this cloudy look about you. I've been wanting to bring it up for some time now. I've only been home for three days. But before, even. I've been worried about you. His mother had the rare but unmistakable expression she got when she was preparing to try to exert authority. She wasn't the authoritarian type, but in the absence of a father, she had to take the offensive periodically. You seem very unfocused, she said, as if you're drifting. There is a certain urgency lacking. What is there to be urgent about, Mom? It's Christmas vacation. She looked at him some more, with her hazel eyes, which sometimes turned green. Her affection was discomforting, though he had never been without it, or even considered that he might ever be. He felt his cheeks warm up, and watched the corners of her mouth slowly turn into a bittersweet smile, as if she was seeing something that had not yet come into view for him. Another passage read, He knew, of course he knew, that she loved him. He could not deny it. And smiling, she looked out the window and said, thinking to herself, Nothing on earth can equal this happiness. A dried piece of scraggly, orangish paper a ripped strip of it had stuck out of the top of the book like a buoy in a channel, and when he got to it he found these words underlined in pencil. He took out the shred of paper and examined it. He was sitting on the floor in a dusty corner of the study, next to a ragged brown armchair. It was a shred, all right, one of several torn up and placed, perhaps, in a pile so they could be used over the course of a reading session. This shred was the first of several sprouting up from the top of the book, a grove of markers densely clustered in an area where his father seemed to have found interesting material. The next marked page contained just one underlined sentence. It's almost too dark to see. Very enigmatic observation, thought Alex. Some lines were neatly drawn, but most had been made casually, almost sloppily, though they never ran over the words. They wavered. It was hard for him to gauge how much the pencil marks had faded over time. The whole issue of time and dates bothered him. How old had his father been when he made these marks? Alex wanted to know. Another underlined segment he came across was itself in quotes and read, And all the lives we ever lived, and all the lives to be, are full of trees and changing leaves. How old would the man be who marked that? He walked around his neighborhood in the daytime, looking at people passing, and wondering why they weren't at work. No one in the middle of the day in a residential neighborhood was in a rush, he realized. He scrutinized faces, 
searching for the anxiety of lateness, but only found people drifting into hardware stores, clothing stores, the corner market. What was their excuse? He had his, and it comforted him. He was a student. Such an easy excuse. He wondered how long it would last. At this rate, he thought, an eternity. He imagined calling Sloane. I've discovered peeling paint on all the walls, and I've walked around the apartment pulling pieces off the ceiling so it won't look as bad, he would say. The house hasn't been painted since three years before my dad died. Maybe you should get the place painted, she would say. She was annoyingly pragmatic when she wanted to keep a distance between them. I thought maybe you weren't having a good time with what's-his-name and wanted to come up to New York, he would say. He imagined what she would say to a question like that. He decided he wouldn't want to hear it. Amid a battalion of small photographs set up on his mother's bedroom bureau was a small snapshot of his parents. His father and mother were extremely good-looking, particularly his mother, who had high, sharp cheekbones and thin lips and wore her brown hair in a bun. Her family was from Berlin. Her grandfather had been an enormously wealthy banker who had shot himself just after the First World War when he had lost all his money. Alex liked that detail of his family history. The combination of death and money had a certain glamour for him. His father had been born in Vienna. He was handsome in the photograph, with dark hair and deep grooves in his face, particularly in the forehead. He had a certain monkey quality to him. The picture was a head-and-shoulders shot of the two of them, dressed up nicely, with their shoulders squared to the camera, but their heads turned a little toward each other, each of them gazing at the other's face. His mother looked stunning. She was wearing a black dress that contrasted sharply with the string of pearls around her neck. Her smooth skin caught the light and glowed. His father was merely handsome in comparison, and his smile suggested that he felt even gleeful at his good luck but they shared a conspiratorial gaze, glimmering with hidden knowledge. Was it the secret of beauty? Was it the secret of happiness? Alex imagined the moment as intense. The picture was small, not more than two inches square. His mother liked antique things, small things, frames and cameos in particular. The family history was suffused in a 19th-century ambiance, completed by ornate silver embellishments and delicate wood carvings around the frames. The frames were precious, personal. He rarely saw them, though. Because of the sharp rays of the morning sun that flooded his mother's window, the pictures were all turned to face the wall. She had never managed to put up any blinds. That the sun was fading the pictures was a discovery his mother had made somewhat late in the game, and most of the pictures had already lost a good deal of clarity as if they were undergoing the development process in reverse. In one, he himself was walking on unsteady legs across the grass. He was chubby-cheeked, but had a look of great purpose. But the photograph was now nearly a mirage. It had faded so badly. His parents' good looks interested him, but not as much as their shared expression in the small picture. They had recently married, that was for sure. He was rugged and dark and wise-looking with his lined face. His mother looked like a goddess. Her eyes and his seared into each other's with deep meaning. Or was it just lust? Exquisite happiness. Intense happiness. 
He looked at the words and then the scrawny pencil lines underneath them. The underlining was no more or less emphatic than elsewhere, but he still stared at it, trying to infer something more. When did his father read this? When did he make these marks? What was the proximity of the time of these marks to that of the small picture, to all the pictures? The day Alex had gone to the bureau and, in a rout of the established order, about-faced the whole group of photographs so he could look at them together, it had dawned on him that all the photographs of his father had been taken when he was an adult. He had reached a watershed in life that Alex had yet to get near. He had the look of a man whose twenties had never taken place, or, if they had, had somehow been lost. Where had his father been when he was twenty? What secrets had he learned between twenty and the time of the picture? What had prompted him to underline these words? What had he figured out? An impossibility, an immovable wall, lay between Alex and the answer— he felt the strain of permanence in the situation and in everything that reminded him of it. The remaining cigarettes, the same paint on the walls, the stain on the headboard on his father's side of the bed. There was a secret in them that had clearly been lost, gone down, away. It had descended beneath an impenetrable surface. Alex could only run his hands over it, searching for a subtle suggestion a different kind of imperfection. He didn't feel sentimental about it, just frustrated, like an archaeologist who has hit bedrock. No farther to dig. No more options. Except, perhaps one. He decided to move laterally. He began to scavenge the house for things obsolete, unexpected, he took a pack of the old yellowed cigarettes and marched out into the day with it. Broadway glistened in the stunning white light of noon. It had been remarkably clear weather since he got back. Walking down the street with an ancient and unlit cigarette between his fingers, it occurred to him that he wasn't depressed at all. If anything, he was buoyant. He had this thing, this business about his father and his secrets of happiness, that he couldn't figure out. The challenge was dredging him up out of his self-pity about Sloane, and he took this to be a good sign. He wasn't depressed. He was merely mystified. He was looking for something between the lines. Enjoying this state, he lit the cigarette and took a few lung-scorching puffs. Awful. He held it between his thumb and index finger, felt its warmth. He liked it in his hand. It was his father's cigarette one of the last few in a pack that he had never had a chance to smoke. They'd been stranded. Alex was reading To the Lighthouse with a dual diligence. He was watching for his father's markings, but at the same time the book was captivating him in its rhythm, like a boat that rocks subtly and whose rocking sensation persists even when its passengers have disembarked. Then on page 193 he made a startling discovery— between the pages, he found a business card. Clearly meant as a marker, it had slipped down, so it hadn't been visible. The card was yellowed, and on it was his father's name, Solomon Fader, M.D. In the lower right-hand corner was his father's office address and telephone number, with the exchange spelled out, Trafalgar, 9372 Alex picked up the card and turned it over in his hand for a moment before realizing the full significance of the find. 
His father was at that office for only the last nine years of his life. It meant that he probably knew he was dying, as he read, to the lighthouse. For his illness, Alex knew, had lasted more than eight years. Alex suddenly thought about a spring walk in Central Park that his mother had once told him about. The day was warm and sunny, and his parents had gone out for a stroll at lunchtime. Things were going well for them, by any standard. Except, during that particular walk, the man in the picture informed his wife that he was dying, and things were no longer going well, by any standard. The words, she had known happiness, exquisite happiness, intense happiness, sprang to Alex's mind again. Then came the image in the photograph, that secret but happy gaze his parents shared. Did his father read the book just before he found out he was dying of cancer, when things were going so well, when he had a career and a wife and a baby boy, or just after, when all such perceptions would be influenced by this new knowledge, or had dying caused some kind of purified state of emotion, something that heightened everything? Was imminent death a magnifying glass through which the heat of life was intensified? enlarged and sharpened into a prism point of misery and joy. He went out again and walked down the street, preoccupied with his thoughts. His gaze was fixed on the pavement in front of him. Then he lifted his head and saw his mother just down the block. She was holding a plastic grocery bag, but it was a light load, probably only a carton of milk, maybe some oranges, some bread. His mother when not in a celebratory mood, lived frugally. But it was her expression that stopped him. She too was engrossed in something, and had her head down as she scrutinized the ground in front of her. Her face looked concerned, even old, and it struck him that his mother was aging. Not that the idea was such a shock, but it jarred him to see how different the face he was looking at just then was from the taut, angular, smooth-skinned face that looked so coolly into the smiling monkey face of his father in the photograph. This face, her face now, wore an expression of mild confusion, as if she were trying to remember where she had left her keys. He stood still as she approached him on a direct collision course. She was oblivious. The face that had so often warmed his looked a little gray. It came nearer, a visage, and only when she was only five or ten feet away did she look up abruptly, as if she had noticed his shoes standing still on the pavement. Alex had been smiling as she came nearer, and he was looking forward to the prospect of surprising her. But when she suddenly looked up, she had such an expression of alarm and shock that he felt his own face freeze. Her expression was completely unfamiliar. She was wholly surprised, off guard. Her mouth was slightly ajar, her eyes wide, her face a little slack around the edges. She blinked a moment, composing herself, registering that this was her son in front of her, and then started to smile. But it was too late. He was upon her, hugging her. Something had come over him at the sight of her disorientation, and he had leaped forward to embrace her, as if he were catching her in mid-fall. The leap was urgent, desperate even, and when he got to her, he put his arms around her and squeezed her tightly to his chest, as if he were afraid that she might drop something or lose something, or as if some secret, which only she knew, 
would slip away. That was Saeed Serifizadeh reading Thomas Beller's story, A Different Kind of Imperfection, which was published in The New Yorker in 1991 and included in his collection, Seduction Theory, published by Norton. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So, Saeed, what do you make of the very first word of this story, which is and, and then it was Christmas vacation? Why do you think we started Medias Race like that? It definitely propels you into something, and um, it makes you wonder, made me wonder, well, what's what just preceded all of this? Since so much of the story is about unearthing these secrets and trying to discover things, there's a sense that it didn't just begin this moment with this story and him looking in these books and that it's not obviously going to end. Maybe maybe the, the story should even end with a dot, 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 that we're just continuing <laughs> and on. And then. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, the end then it was, and yeah. then it was Christmas Vacation. It was sh- It's shocking to me, actually, to see a story begin that way. Yeah, it is. It's very surprising. And it implies that perhaps, you know, on the previous page, he was talking about college or, right. or something, or we were inside this internal monologue. And actually, to think of a 25-year-old writer who's at Columbia, you would think he's violating some sort of principle of how to write a story by doing that. So there's, I, I admire him for his gut, gutsiness. <laughs> there's something very conscious. Yeah. They're self-conscious about it. Beller edited an anthology of pieces about J.D. Salinger. And when I read the story, I can't help feeling that there's something of Holden Caulfield here, that this is Holden a few years older coming home from college instead of school. And perhaps looking at his mother with a little more desire to understand or sympathize. Right. But do you do you pick up on that? You know, I haven't read Catcher in the Rye in a long time, although I did recently read nine stories. And I know that Tom's obviously a huge fan of Holden Caulfield. There is a lot of sympathy and compassion for his mom here. And one of the sort of unstated themes of this piece is his mother's depression or even the sort of the depression that's fallen over the household. There's also another psychological undercurrent here, or at least I think there is, which is this sort of uneasy notion of incest, which right. comes up, you know, when he first opens the book of Freud, he opens it directly right. to a page about incest, that's kind right. of shoves it right back in the, right. in the bookshelf. And every time that uh, Alex thinks of his mother, he mentions how attractive she is. Yes, And every time there's a sort of moment of intimacy, he retreats and is made very uncomfortable by it. What do you think Beller's doing with that? The boy becomes the husband, not uh, consciously, but I think he's, in a way, has replaced his father with her. And I think, especially with the ending, 
I imagine that when she looks up at him and has that startled, shocking expression on her face, in my mind, she's thinking that she's somehow just seen her husband mm -hmm. come alive. Mm -hmm. um, Alexander doesn't ever describe himself what he looks like. He describes the monkey face of his father. But it's made me wonder what exactly, how he resembles his father, what looks he's taken. But there's definitely, yeah, this... this um, enclosed intimacy between the two of these people in this apartment that uh, where there was once this third member. Yeah, well, there's also, I mean, there's sort of two triangles going on here and two couples from which Alex seems to feel excluded. One is Sloane and her right, boyfriend right. and the other is his father and his mother that he's trying to somehow get to the bottom of or displace, right. displace the other man right. in a, right. you know, a very right. Oedipal way. Right. And also, he seems to... I'm interested by his perception of his father because he's obviously trying to get to the bottom of who his father was and he's fascinated to kind of uncover his character. At the same time, he's calling him a monkey face. Right. I mean, right. there's something a little aggressive there. Right. Very dismissive of him. And, but, and it's also, I suppose, a way to elevate his mother, the beauty of his mother. And dismissive. I mean, Alexander must in some way feel that he has been dismissed by his own father with his death. So that might be a way for him to, you know, take some of the power back and now lord over his father by diminishing his appearance. Why do you think he feels so much guilt around his mother? Does he feel guilt? Does he feel a lot of Seems guilt? He's always feeling guilty. He's not giving he's her not, what she needs. That's right. He's not saying the right things. Right? He's not, she wants to know about him and he right. can't talk to her. And... He slouches. He keeps <laughs> slouching back to the, yeah, the bedroom. Retreating to his bedroom. That's right. Well, there's Sloane, too. I mean, that he has this other love affair. So he's betrayed his mother that's by right, having a girlfriend. That's right. And when Milo says, why don't you come skiing with me? There's going to be women. And he, you know, says he doesn't want that or need that as, as if he's above that. There must be some sense of wanting to remain loyal. Right. He says he can't, at some point, he says he can't imagine ever living without her affection or something like that, that he would never know what that would be like and he'd never imagine that possibility. It's the one remaining loyal family member in his life, really, that he must, I guess, stay sort of beholden to. And why do you think he becomes so obsessed with his father's notes in the books? Yeah, it's the only the only remaining thing that he can sort of discover what who this man was and that he, has, as he describes, has yet to become. You know, when he was reading To the Lighthouse and then saying, oh, okay, so my the book was published five years after my dad's birth and when would he have been reading it? He would have been 20. He would have been at this place, at this juncture. I'm not yet that age. Alexander's trying to find his sort of, his own place in the world through this man who's gone mm -hmm. with very little to go on. And it's strange. He never really asks his mom, I don't think. Right. I mean, that, that comes into my mind too. Why doesn't he, he has a source of information right there. That's right. There what, you're right. Exactly. That he's not tapping. One might surmise that uh, that she's not going to be forthcoming mm -hmm. with it. And even the idea of the blinds being open and the pictures fading, that she's got some wish to just let this fade off. Going back to that last scene, you know, you, you said that uh, when the mother looks up, you think she's seeing her dead husband. Mm -hmm. Why does she look so afraid and sort of aghast? The ghost has yeah. come back. I feel like this story is haunted with ghosts. And mm -hmm. here he is arisen. <laughs> yeah. Because he describes how she first sees the shoes and then mm -hmm. looks up into the face. And um, 
And he talks about that she, when she's walking, that she's focused on something very intently, mm-hmm. which, you know, makes me think that she's at that point also thinking of the father. And also that he's, you know, that we think, okay, well, what's happened to Alexander? The way the story begins of, and then it was Christmas, what was going on with Alexander's life, but also think about what was going on with the mother's life, that she was living alone in this apartment before here he comes returning. And uh, so she's got her own feeling of presence of ghosts and her son growing up. Do you think that he learns anything? I mean, he's desperately trying to learn something. Do you think that from these notes and these underlinings, do you think he learned something about about love, about his own relationship, about his father? He's learning that he needs to learn. (laughs) I think that's what it is, that these questions are arising in him and he's aware of them. I think he makes it that this is going to be a lifelong journey. The embrace with his mother at the end and talking about that he needs to hold her tightly unless she drops some certain key to something. That, yeah, she, she, the secret dies with that's, her. Yeah. That's right. That's yeah. right. Which actually maybe then uh, speaks to the earlier question of why isn't he ever asking her? Mm-hmm. Maybe that is something he's thinking of at the end, that uh, she does hold the key to something. You mentioned earlier that that you thought this story was incredibly sad and that right. it almost made you cry while reading it. What's the root of that emotion? A lot of it mirrors my own upbringing. With I grew up, my my dad left home when I was nine months old, and uh, my mother never remarried, and suffered from depression in an apartment that I could imagine being similar to the apartment that Alexander's living in. So there's a lot of heartbreaking qualities in this. Also, for Beller, there are quite a few autobiographical elements here, which he went to Vassar. His father died when he was almost 10. um, His apartment was not painted for a while. A lot of of overlap. Do you find that that overlap between the life and and the fiction adds to or in some way interferes with your reading of the story? You know, I can only think of it in terms of my friendship with Tom. It, It adds to my friendship with him. As much as I could, I tried to look at the story as its own piece, you know, even thinking about how I would read it, how I would read the mother's voice, whether it would have an accent, because I know his mother has an accent, but it's never mentioned here that she was born elsewhere. So I'm sure this is false, but I tried to not bring Tom into the story as I was reading it and interpreting it. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm sure that's impossible, but... All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Deborah. Saeed Sarafizadeh is a fiction writer and playwright and the author of the memoir, When Skateboards Will Be Free. You can subscribe to this podcast or download previous episodes in the iTunes store. Also, the tablet edition of the magazine is available in the App Store and it's free to subscribers. In the tablet edition, you can hear authors read their own stories, including Saeed Sarafizadeh reading his story, Paranoia, which was published in February. You can also download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or Audible.com or join the conversation on our Facebook page. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by NewYorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.